It's been a month since Michiganders went to the polls and voted, but the midterm elections, well, I guess you could say they aren't quite over. There is going to be a recount, or a partial recount, of two statewide proposals that were on the ballot, Props 2 and 3, voting rights and abortion rights. And the whole debate over whether and why to recount political proposals that were decisive is a bit testy. This is a fishing expedition. That's a prejudgment, sir, and I find that offensive. This Mr. Allen put up a significant amount of money in order to... This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. Today we're looking at a couple of post-mortem election stories. We'll get to the spiciness of election results and challenges a little bit later in the pod. First, we want to look at how changes in how districts were drawn affected election outcomes. We're bringing in two experts on the issue. The commission had this mandate of drawing maps uh, that overall wouldn't provide a disproportionate advantage to any political party. That's Clara Hendrickson. She's been following the Citizens Independent Redistricting Commission for the Detroit Free Press. We're also talking with Matt Grossman, director of the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University. And in drawing the map, sort of the end product uh, ended up with more competitive districts than we've had in, in recent years. And the, the big test here, the first general election under these new maps showed that um, when Democratic congressional and legislative candidates won more votes statewide, they also ended up winning a majority of seats in the state's congressional delegation in both chambers of the state legislature. And they did that in part by winning close races in some of these new competitive districts. Matt, you've been around the block with redistricting once or twice. This change that the Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission uh, enacted, do you feel like it truly gave us something different than we had in the prior cycles? Well, it had a huge impact. Uh, As uh, Clara mentioned, the Democrats got more statewide votes in both chambers by about one and a half percent. And they'll end up with similar margins uh, in the state chambers. And that had not been true uh, in previous cycles where Democrats had sometimes gotten more votes statewide, uh, but not uh, gotten control of those uh, state House and Senate. There's an argument that has been made and continues to be made that making the districts more competitive in some regions came at the expense of black representation in the legislature and in Congress We know that the commission was dealing with several different kinds of constraints in terms of the Federal Voting Rights Act and the rules about drawing district boundaries. Do you you think that those two things could have been balanced in other ways? Well, yes, the uh, commission had to comply with the Voting Rights Act uh, and the commission's lawyer uh, correctly interpreted that as meaning that they did not have to Uh, create majority minority districts uh, and that they uh, could try to create more districts of opportunity uh, to elect black candidates. But as Clara lived through, they received a lot of pushback on these maps that uh, especially uh, created these eight mile crossing districts with minorities of the Detroit population uh, and majorities uh, outside of it. 
And that was a very particular strategy that they uh, pursued uh, to create a lot of uh, districts that were about 40 to 45 percent African-American population, uh, but not majority. Uh, and we have been critical of that uh, in seeing that they did not have to do that. Uh, I do believe it's compliant with the Voting Rights Act, but I don't believe it was necessary. Uh, and I don't believe it was necessary to create either the statewide parity uh, between the parties or to create competitive districts. When voters approved the the redistricting commission in the form that they did, you know, and sort of set set all of this in motion, it, this was this was taken on with the understanding that more competitive districts was what people wanted. Clara, I guess I'll start with you since you were, uh, you know, boots on the ground during election season. Do you think this made any big differences in how campaign spending went in Michigan this year? I think you're right that when a lot of voters were asked to. Um, consider approving this constitutional amendment that created the commission, they assumed that it would lead to increased competition. But I think it's important to note that if you actually read the the text of the constitutional amendment, it doesn't say that the commission needed to draw more competitive districts. Um, Some political science experts that I've spoken to have basically said that drawing fair maps, uh, overall a combination of safe Democratic seats and safe Republican seats um, is sort of ended up with a byproduct of more competitive districts. Um, But these these tight districts are going to lead to really close races where we're probably going to see a lot of spending coming in. That's sort of what we saw this this cycle where newly drawn competitive state Senate, congressional and state house districts just uh, brought in a ton of money this cycle. And so that's likely to be the case over the next four elections under these maps as well. Matt, is that consistent with what you saw happening throughout the summer and fall? Well, we saw a lot more money in Michigan. Uh, That uh, followed not just uh, the individual number of competitive districts, but the fact that each chamber uh, was up for election. Both of our chambers were in the top six most competitive chambers nationwide uh, out of 99. Uh, So uh, the money does follow competitive districts, but it really follows those states where uh, partisan control of the chamber is at stake. Uh, And that was uniquely uh, true of both of our chambers. Again, a question I'd like to hear both of you address. It's what did we learn? Do you think that the next time Michigan uh, sets about redistricting, which thankfully is about nine years down the road, are there things that that can be improved on in 10 years when we do this again? Matt, do you want to start out? Uh, I think uh, we have learned that uh, we we can sort of go forward with a successful uh, process. They can uh, meet the constitutional requirements, uh, come to consensus across uh, party lines. Uh, so all of that was successful. But I think that we've learned that they were very dependent on the staff that they chose. Um, they uh, chose one staff member uh, that used uh, particular measures of partisan uh, fairness, and they met those measures. Uh, and they chose another staff member that chose a particular strategy for Voting Rights Act compliance, and they really followed that. So I think it really matters uh, who is uh, guiding the commission, um, because after all, they really did come from all walks of life uh, and were unfamiliar uh, with this process. It's such a technical thing to draw up maps of this nature. And anyone who spent time on the commission's website, I mean, you look at it and it's it's true that that the maps don't have the the wildly uh, geometric gerrymandered look that that, you know, that they may have in the past. But it is pretty technical to look at populations and communities of interest. 
Do you think that that future commissions will make any different choices in terms of who they listen to, Matt, based on uh, these experiences, as you say? Well, I think they will. I think when there is kind of overwhelming feedback in one direction, um, that they'll be more attentive to it. Uh, in in the future, but it does depend on how things develop uh, over the next uh, 10, 10 years. Uh, we are uh, going to see a different uh, kind of spate of elections in part because the term limits initiative also passed. Uh, and so uh, many of these people who were just elected in these new districts may be there for up to 12 years. So uh, for us to get high turnover in the legislature in the remaining elections, uh, we're going to have to see uh, people challenge incumbents uh, in primaries or general elections. And so it'll be interesting to see who steps forward. Uh, and in particular, in these districts uh, that include Detroit, uh, but are not completely within Detroit, uh, if uh, that results in uh, a greater variety of candidates moving forward, uh, if people are willing to challenge uh, incumbents to change the balance of who is represented. We need to take a break. What a call for a recount means for Michigan in a minute. Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Normally, we think of recounts as applying to election results that were close, like a few hundred, maybe a couple thousand votes difference across the state. That was not the case with Proposals 2 and 3. In November, they both won across the state with broad support. That doesn't stop anyone from putting up the money to pay for a recount or a partial recount. The recounts this time around apply to Prop 2 which altered some voting rules with an eye to making voting more accessible to all, and to Prop 3, which embedded reproductive rights in the state constitution. Now, there are some people who still believe that sweeping election fraud has affected results in the state, although there has never been evidence of discernible fraud here. And the election challengers would like to see whether a hand recount will give them evidence of the fraud that they seek. Rick Pluta, senior correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network, joins us now to spill all the beans. Rick, hi. Hi, April. So do members of the Board of State Canvassers think that these recounts are necessary? Well, no, they they don't. As a matter of fact, um, they think it's a waste of time and money. But they also determined that they really don't have any choice because of the way that the law is written. Um, in fact, some say that the law should be revisited to maybe put a stop to uh, these kinds of shenanigans that won't actually change the results in the end. 
Right. So in terms of the representatives from Proposal 2 and Proposal 3, what did they have to say about these requests for recounts? Well, I mean, they're opposed that this is a waste of time, that this is just an effort to really not revisit the election, that the the ballot campaigns kind of feel like they're being sucked into something different, which is an effort to go and pick out some precincts, find some problems, and then sort of wedge the knife in there and start wiggling to see if they can, you know, make some of these cracks larger and eventually have the, uh, you know, have the wall come down. And they feel like these proposals, which, I mean, are are more progressive than conservative, are being used as part of that effort to just overall call into question the integrity of elections. Rick, what is the rationale for the recounts? Why are those who asked for them? Can you can you give us any background on who's asking for this? Um, these are groups that were involved in trying to challenge the results of the last election and to call into question whether or not the counts were fair and accurate. And you know, we saw a lot of uh, you know bedlam uh, playing out at the uh, um, at the board of state canvassers meeting here. And it's basically you know more or less the same group of people. As a matter of fact, in, in sort of this interesting twist, in this case, there was this question is about, about whether or not the quote-unquote losers even had standing to you know, make this kind of request to try and challenge the results because they didn't have a, a, a specific stake in the result in the same way that a candidate might have, where there's a winner, there's a loser. There is a campaign to adopt these. They won. They might be able to challenge the results if they lost. But there was this whole murky issue as to whether or not people who just didn't like the result of a ballot campaign could come in and try and uh, seek that sort of a recount. Right. We're going to listen to a little bit of audio of uh, some some of this being discussed with uh, in, in rather heated terms. Do you want to set this up for us, Rick? Um, sure. This is uh, the first voice you will hear is uh, Tony Daunt. He is a Republican and the chair of the Board of State Canvassers. And he's angry and frustrated, like other election officials are, about, you know, what they see are games being played around uh, uh, around uh, these these recounts. And the person that's arguing with him is Daniel Hartman, and he's an attorney for um, one of the groups uh, seeking the recount. I came here with the not with the desire to find a way to Sir, conduct this. Do you need this. to recuse yourself for bias? Excuse me. You've already made a determination without a single ballot being recounted that you are a biased. You've just called this a I frivolous and a waste of time. I'm going. Do you not take your oath of office serious? Do we have quorum here of unbiased people? Sir? Sir. Oh, boy. Rick, why is it that recounts were requested for proposals two and three, but not for proposal one, which was concerned with term limits and some other rules for state lawmakers? Because they didn't see the, the groups that are seeking the recounts didn't see the same opening and, and they weren't invested in um, the issue of term limits the same way that they're invested in sort of these, you know, these social hot buttons of um, of abortion and election integrity. So, um, you know, that's that's a big part of it. And again. Uh, 
again, you know, that, that just a lot of what they're seeing here is there's no chance that these recounts, if they're all successful, will change the results that these proposals were adopted, which begs the question, so then why seek the recounts if not to try and start a chain of events that could try to call into question the integrity of these elections and maybe even elections in general? Um, yeah, I mean, don't forget that, you know, we have a former president of the United States who right now is still calling for revisiting the last presidential election uh, in an effort to vacate the results, which is obviously you know, futile and frankly silly. The Board of State Canvassers meeting to approve election results last week also sounds like it got pretty contentious. Conspiracy theorists showed up. Police were involved. Do you think, Rick, that the recount is inviting more of this? I mean, is this going to end up just as positive reinforcement for people who want to believe that there's something wrong with Michigan's elections? A significant amount of the board meeting was devoted to exactly that question, that are you facilitating nonsense if you allow this recount to go forward, or are you indulging critics and helping to reassure people, even who their beliefs aren't rooted in a realistic challenge, are you still reassuring them that there is a process that's available to them and that it works and that it's fair? I mean, in the end, the question became moot because the board and the state elections director had determined that they had no choice because that's already what the law says, which is they are entitled to a recount. They can ask for a recount as long as they're willing to pay for the recount, uh, although really that's only partially pay for the recount. I have a couple of logistics questions about this, too. Who performs the recounts? Is it the clerks, the local clerks who initially tallied ballots? It is the local clerks and people that they bring in from their offices to who will uh, perform the uh, who will perform the recount. And um, they however, they have to report their work. They're operating technically under the supervision of the Board of State Canvassers and the State Bureau of Elections. And this was a big argument um, during the Board of State Canvassers meeting as well, because the Board of State Canvassers wanted it clear that the state was going to be in charge of it, while the, the, the groups seeking the recount were hoping to put it more in the local level. And there was a concern that that would leave more room for shenanigans in terms of the recount and how things might play out. And always a relevant question, who's paying for all this? Well, the campaigns seeking the recount are paying for it, that uh, they pay for you know a, a fee for every precinct. And it's not clear exactly how much you know that will be, but it will be significant. But most of the court, most of the costs, frankly, are going to be borne by taxpayers and those local governments because the fees have not changed in years and years and years and years and years. And the costs of performing these have gone up, both the direct cost of paying the staff members who are going to be conducting it, and that's their regular salaries plus overtime, plus the indirect costs of the things that they're not going to be doing, the services that they're not going to be performing for uh, taxpayers while they're uh, focused on recounts. Is there any kind of timeline over which the recounts need to be completed? 
It is expected that um, it will probably take maybe a couple of weeks, all told. Some of the jurisdictions will move very quickly because they're smaller, not a lot of precincts. Uh, in some cases, more precincts are going to be counted. And, you know, as you might expect, that will take longer. Rick Pluta, senior correspondent with the Michigan Public Radio Network. Hey, Rick, thanks for this. Oh, thank you. And that's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Baer. You can find full Stateside episodes at michiganradio.org. Today's pod was produced by our podcast editor, Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on the show are Mike Blank, Ronia Kabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our executive producer, Laura Weber-Davis, edited today's pod. Music for the show comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.